Could you follow the Moscow rules? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 21 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. And welcome to June 2021. It's hard to believe we're approaching halfway through the year. A year that started out looking almost as bleak as 2020 was. But a vaccine changed all that. Yay, science. Because of that vaccine, I get to have my first in-person book event in 19 months. On Saturday, June 12, 2021, from 1230 to 1400, I'll be signing books in person, no Zoom, a real person, with real books at a real table at The Book Dragon, which is a wonderful independent bookstore in Stanton, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley. So if you're out and about in Virginia on June 12th, why not come on to Stanton? We've got great restaurants, a great downtown, and this great bookstore, The Book Dragon, and you could come see me. And I'm really grateful to The Book Dragon because the owner is a tremendous supporter of local authors. It's a great bookstore. It's got lots of interesting things in addition to used books and new titles and series, children's books. It's a really great store jammed into a small space. And if you don't want to meet me, you can still come out and give the book dragon some love. Okay, this week starts the promotion of my new book, which is coming out on July the 10th, which happens to be my dad's 95th birthday. He would have been 95 if he were still alive. And I thought it was a perfect day to launch a new book because he was always supportive of my writing. He read the first article that I had published in a magazine back in the early 1980s. And he was just so proud of the fact that, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, whoever reads this, there's your name and it'll be there forever, which was pretty cool. And so my first novel, A War of Deception, I dedicated to him. So now on what would have been his 95th birthday, I'm launching a new book and It's sort of in in honor of him. So the new book is entitled Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules. And this is a collection of short stories. It's, It's not a novel. It's a standalone, but it's a collection of short stories. But as usual, it's it's never simple with me and short stories. 
I actually wrote a novel in stories, The Better Spy, and it I put it in reverse chronology. Spy Flash 3 is about as unconventional. Within it, there are several standalone stories that form a single story arc interspersed throughout the book. And then there's one complete story. It's a long story that's almost novelette length. And in the book, I introduce a new character to the directorate canon. So I'm going to get started with an excerpt from the first story in the collection entitled Assume Nothing. And let me set the story up a bit. Some directorate recruits are in one of their first classes at what they colloquially call the Spy U or Spy University. And the topic of conversation comes around to something called the Moscow Rules. One trainee, Derek Price, questions whether a set of informal Cold War protocols are relevant in today's high-tech world of espionage. So Marcellus Block is the instructor, and another trainee is Sybil Fleming. She's a new character that I'm developing and hope to do lots more stories about. So here we go. Assume nothing. Once they finished the discussion and ended with keep your options open, Price spoke up again. Look, all this is fascinating, I'm sure, but we did the History 101 thing in college. You recruited us to be field operatives. Why aren't we learning to be field operatives? Can't wait to get to the guns, huh? Block said. I was a field operative for 20-plus years before becoming a management puke. How many times do you think a gun saved my life versus how many times my head did? Block tapped his temple. Head wins, hands down. Price, no matter what the profession, you never dismiss the lessons learned the hard way by those who went before you. I know you millennials think you either invented the world or the world is put here for you, but I'm telling you, if you leave here without an understanding of how others handled a situation, some two-bit secret policeman in some third-world hellhole will roll you up, or worse, in a second. He snapped his fingers, the sound loud in the conference room. Most of the trainees jumped. And... In case you think in today's world we all respect each other, and if you are rolled up, you'll get a nice, comfy cell until an exchange gets worked out, think again. This fundamental truth holds then and now. The other side fucking hates you, and you need to fucking hate them. If they get you in one of their interrogation rooms, there are no protocols, no letters from an attorney general, no code of military justice, no constitution. Or if they do have any of that, they say, fuck it, there's you 
and your interrogator. Only you can save you, and if you've got a head full of knowledge, knowledge, not assumptions, knowledge, you can beat them every time. Block shrugged off his suit jacket, his movements swift but deliberate. He rolled up his sleeves and stretched his arms out for everyone to see. In the livid fluorescent lights, dark circular scars dotted his skin, black against the brown. Cigarette burn scars. Price shifted with unease. Maybe if I'd paid better attention to those outdated rules, Price, I'd have been spared some pain. Those fucking rules were in my head the whole time, like a mantra. And they are why I survived, why I never broke. Block pinned a glare on Price. And since this is History 101, Block said, your homework assignment is to write an analysis comparing and contrasting the Moscow rules with the modern 10 rules. 10,000 words or more, footnoted, bibliography, and do it our next get-together. Each of you will read yours aloud and defend your conclusions. Any questions? Several hands went up. No? Good. Have a nice lunch and a great afternoon. Block closed his laptop, gathered his jacket, and stalked from the room. Well, hell, Price said. That'll teach me to watch my mouth. Oh, I doubt that, Sybil Fleming thought. All right, that's just a brief introduction to the story and the character of Marcellus Block, who, by the way, actually makes an appearance as a directorate trainee himself in End Times, Book One of A Perfect Hatred, and again in A Face in the Crowd, the mini-sequel to A War of Deception. But I wanted to break at this point and talk a bit about the Moscow Rules. As was stated in the reading, the Moscow Rules were highly informal suggestions. They weren't really rules. They were, this is what you might want to do to save your life type of things. And they were for Western spies who worked primarily in Eastern Europe and also primarily in Moscow. Moscow was a location very hostile to Western spies. KGB agents were well-trained in psychology, how to spot unusual behavior that might clue them the person exhibiting this behavior isn't who they claim to be. And they also knew how to spot vulnerabilities to exploit, but they, they also used this training in psychology and human nature to spot people they were certain were spies. And they were quite often correct. Part of that was Western spies or brand new case officers in Moscow in the 50s and 60s really didn't know how to act. I mean, they'd been told, stay within your cover, but they really didn't know what that meant or how to even do that. And they reverted to their real personality sometimes inappropriately and cued the KGB to who they were. Also, in the 1950s and 1960s, 
Western spies were way outnumbered by the KGB and the secret police in their satellite countries' counterparts like the Stasi in East Germany. It wasn't uncommon for a brand new embassy employee, which was the standard cover for most case officers, particularly in Moscow, to have a cadre of 10 or 20 KGB agents who would literally follow them wherever they went in Moscow. And that made it very difficult to recruit potential agents, and it also exposed the case officer to revealing, and again, inadvertently, who he or she was. Now, the KGB was also very good at disguising themselves. I mean, they used a lot of people so that you wouldn't see the same person during your routine through the day, because that's one of the cues. If you see a person more than three times, it's probably not coincidence. They're probably following you. So they got around this by having a huge number of people follow a single person. In the movie that came out recently, The Courier, there's a great scene where where one of the Western spies leaves a building and then somebody follows that spy and then somebody follows the spies following the spies. It was kind of an amusing scene. Maybe not to everyone, I guess to me, because I, I knew what it was. But quite often you were outnumbered by other, by enemy spies. And that made it very easy for them to spot you doing something outside your cover, like talking to a colonel in the GRU that you weren't even supposed to know about, for example. And sometimes new Western case officers arriving in Moscow were really gung-ho. I want to recruit my assets and, you know, show that I'm, I'm, you know, a good operative for the CIA. And they made kind of boner mistakes that cued them to the KGB. And again, since the CIA was new at the time, they really couldn't afford to have a bunch of case officers ejected from Russia and declared persona non grata, meaning they couldn't, they couldn't come back even under a new identity. Some experienced case officers came up with what eventually came to be called the Moscow Rules. Now, some people say that these rules were never written down, that they were simply drummed into new recruits and into case officers during their training. If you've read any of John le Carre's George Smiley books, those books are rife with examples of the Moscow Rules even if Le Carre never refers to them by that name. Because when they were developed, you know, they, uh, they also took the experience of British intelligence at the time, which had been around longer than the CIA. Other authors, other espionage authors, and some espionage-related television shows, again, have also made equally vague references to the Moscow Rules and sort of establish them as kind of a informal 
standard operating practice. But it took the International Spy Museum, upon its initial opening, to write those original 10 Moscow rules down in the form of a postcard that they sold in their gift shop, and which I bought, of course, on my first visit there, not long after it opened. And so here are the list of the Moscow rules. Assume nothing. Never go against your gut. Everyone is potentially under opposition control. Do not look back. You are never completely alone. Go with the flow. Blend in. Vary your pattern and stay within your cover. Lull them into a sense of complacency. Do not harass the opposition. Pick the time and place for action. And finally, keep your options open. Most of them, as you can see, and after you sit down and study them for a bit, are fairly self-explanatory. And in Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules, each of the stories in that collection is titled for one of the Moscow rules. And the story itself provides an example of how that rule is applied in the real world. And that's how I came up with the book's tagline, Every Moscow Rule Has a Story. Now, why is it named Spy Flash 3, you ask? Well, because there are a Spy Flash 1 and a Spy Flash 2. And they're on sale for all of June and all of July to celebrate welcoming their siblings, Spy Flash 3, into the family. Spy Flash 1 and 2 are 99 cents each, and Spy Flash 3 is available for pre-order now, but it's also only 99 cents. So, if you pre-order now or any time between now and July the 10th, on July the 10th, the book will download to your Kindle and you'll be charged 99 cents, this special pre-order price. On July the 11th, however, Spy Flash 3 reverts to its regular price, which is still a bargain. I think it's like $3.99 or $4.99. I, I don't remember right now. The important thing is if you, sp if you pre-order it at a, the special price, it's only 99 cents. Which means you could get all three of the Spy Flash books for under $3. Not much you can buy for under $3, unless you're at the dollar store. I'm in the process of setting up a series page on Amazon for the three Spy Flash books. And probably by next week, I'll have a series link that I can use that'll that'll take you right to them. You don't have to go to my Amazon author page and scroll through it until you find the books. But for now, you can find all three of them at amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan. All right, commercial over. We'll get back to some more reading from the story Assume Nothing, the first story in Spy Flash 3, and also the first Moscow rule. 
So in this section, we're introduced a little deeper to Sybil Fleming, the new character. We get a better insight into her personality. I skipped a scene or two after Sybil has a video conference with a character we all know and love, my Fisher. And in that excerpted or in that deleted scene, which you'll have to read the story to see what happens, of course, she has had yet another confrontation with the annoying trainee Derek Price. And it's left her a bit down in the dumps. Marcellus Block was on the punching bag, Jim Shorts displaying his tree trunk legs. His gray t-shirt was sweat-soaked, and light shone off the sweat on his skin. That made him seem to glow, and Sybil suppressed a smile at her whimsy. Block punched the bag hard with boxers' jabs, sweat droplets flying from his head and catching the overhead light. Enough, girl, Sybil reminded herself. Block reminded her of a cross between Samuel L. Jackson and Muhammad Ali. She'd had no romantic attraction for him, but after their first contact when he'd begun recruiting her, She'd fantasized he was her unknown father. He was ice-cold and hard as nails, but his eyes were kind, at least when he'd spoken to her. She could imagine how he'd handle an asset, given the quiet, logical way he'd convinced her the United Nations Intelligence Directorate was where she needed to be. However, she wouldn't want to be on the opposite side of an interrogation he conducted. You want the bag, Fleming? Block asked between jabs. When you're done, sir. Five more minutes. He quickened his sparring with the bag, his blows so fast and furious his hands were a blur. His sweat flowed as if someone had poured a bucket of water over his head. He blinked the moisture from his eyes and kept punching, deliberate, calculated blows. He finished with a right uppercut Sybil thought might decapitate a real person. He stepped back, panting. Block grinned at her. I'm getting old, Fleming. Never, sir. He barked a laugh. My shoulders will ache like a bitch tomorrow. He unlaced his boxing gloves, tied them together, and slung them over his shoulder. You gonna box or martial arts? Kickboxer. Want me to hold the bag? No, sir. I see. For the same reason you didn't want to be called on this morning. Um, yes, sir. I think it's best I'm merely another trainee. That's all you are, Fleming. But I do like calling on trainees who know their stuff. Makes the class shorter. What do you think of Price? He wouldn't be here unless he was qualified. Block grinned and pointed a thick finger at her. That's a bullshit answer. Yes, sir. And it tells me exactly what you think of him. I'm... Not sure why my opinion is so important, sir. In future, would you be able to work with him? 
Yes, provided our mission roles were not vague. He smiled again. Bag's all yours, Fleming. When you're done, report to secure conference room B. Someone wants to talk to you. He raised an eyebrow. Video conference. Who? Classified. Midnight, Fleming. Sybil had time to shower after her workout and before the mysterious video conference. Silly to shower before talking to someone who wouldn't be in the same room, but she'd worked up quite the stench kicking the punching bag to death. At five before midnight, she arrived at the conference room. A guard sat at a desk to the right of the door. He stood when she approached. Name, he said. My name or my number, Sybil asked. Name. Fleming, Sybil. He picked up a tablet and scrolled until he found what he needed. He handed the tablet to her and said, Place your right thumb on the box. Sybil did so, and the tablet dinged right away. The guard went to the door, his body blocking her view of the keypad while he entered a code. The door slid to one side, and the guard turned to her. There's a green button on the wall inside by the door. When you're done, press that. I'll open the door from out here. Thank you, Sybil said, and entered the conference room. The door slid shut behind her. The table would seat four, six if you didn't mind rubbing shoulders with anyone. A monitor took up most of the wall opposite the door. The monitor was on, showing her a wall in another office somewhere. Her analyst's eye took in what detail she could see. Windows either blacked out or it was dark where the call had come from. No ornamentation on the wall the camera faced. No noise other than a slight hum from the video equipment. Without preamble, a woman with gray-streaked auburn hair sat down facing the camera, and Sybil was again reminded of the actress Helen Mirren. Of course, there was no one else who'd set up a video conference on the first day of training than the woman who declared herself Sybil's mentor, Maitland Mai Fisher the head of the United Nations Intelligence Directorate. Good evening, Sybil, Fisher said, that English accent turning a simple sentence into something rather regal. Good morning, ma'am, Sybil replied. Geneva was five hours ahead of the eastern time zone in the U.S. Sybil, lose the ma'am. How was your first day? Sybil frowned. Is this going to be a routine thing? My frowned. Is what going to be a routine thing? A video conference with you. I have no idea why you'd come to that conclusion. The first day can be a real deal-breaker for some. I'd say at least 10% of your cohort will have left overnight. We could make a bet on it. I love making little bets. Keeps me in pen money. Pin money. Was she serious? Fisher was rich, like beyond filthy rich. I'm only curious to hear your impressions, Fisher continued. It was fine. 
formed any alliances? No, is that some secret requirement? It helps in future operations to have a good working relationship with fellow operatives. It's too soon to make that assessment. Oh, you may be right. The first few days with my training officer, I wanted to murder him. She smiled. But he grew on me. Fisher had been married for almost forty years to the operative who'd been her training officer. What are your impressions of Derek Price? Fisher asked. Well, that was out of the blue, Sybil thought. On paper, Price is an excellent candidate. Another smile from Fisher. Your diplomatic skills are far better than mine. I watched his intake interview. I thought he was an officious dick. Sybil had to smile at that. Fisher had once told Sybil she reminded her of herself when she was green. Not much of a reach they'd share an opinion about Derek Prick, uh, Price. I can handle it, Sybil said. Right now, I'm not interested in having him in combat with me. But it was the first day. Sybil, Fisher said, her smile bordering on coy. Never go against your gut. The monitor went black. The call was over. What the hell does that mean? Sybil thought. It means she's watching you. No, she wouldn't. She had a global intelligence organization to run. Why would she focus on a potential new operative? For that matter, why had she shown such interest in Sybil in the first place? A lot of questions, and only one way to get the answers. Persistence. Sybil rose, pressed the green button by the door, and it opened. Of course, after her confrontation in the hallway with Derek Price, she couldn't sleep. Sybil sat up on the side of the bed. Why the hell did this always happen? It was 2015, for God's sake. Why was there always one man who had to be a dick about her? And nine times out of ten, it was a man. Why couldn't they accept her for who she was? She wished this had happened before her video conference with Mai Fisher. Fisher had been in this business a long time and had probably experienced worse. Sybil needed to talk to someone about it, but she was alone, a grunt trainee who had to figure this out on her own. It would be useless to call her mother. Though her mother had professed to be a lifelong feminist, she'd always told Sybil she was too hard, straightforward, and yes, her mother always said, Smile more, honey. Don't be so serious all the time. Sybil's maternal grandmother had been the one to bolster Sybil, to tell her all she could be was herself. Sybil wished she could call Nana and hear that again, but there was no phone in her room. Her cell had been confiscated on arrival because there was no outside communication for the first week. But talking to Nana would help right now. Like Nana had taught her, Sybil assessed her feelings. Was she scared? No. 
Derek Price would have been an easy takedown. Was she angry? Yes. No. Frustrated. Because this happened all the time. Her brief association with the directorate had given her hope she'd be treated like a professional. She'd experienced nothing negative. Until now. Hell, the director of the whole organization had taken Sybil on to mentor. How would my Fisher have handled Derek Price? Sybil smiled, imagining that. Well, Fisher had asked her how the first day had gone, and Sybil had glossed over her reaction to Price's attitude. Determining Price's fitness wasn't Sybil's job. Wait, what had Fisher said to her before the video conference ended? Sybil, never go against your gut. But that's what Sybil had done. Gone against her gut and not ratted out a fellow trainee. Gone against her gut and let her guard down. So that meant Fisher had to know about the other confrontations with Derek Price in the classroom and in the student lounge. Had Fisher monitored everyone or only Sybil? Would Fisher spy on someone she considered a protege? She wouldn't do that, would she? Sybil could almost hear Fisher's cultured British accent. Sybil, assume nothing. That should do it for this week. A little more than half an hour, unlike last week, which was over an hour. <laughs> Next week's story is Moscow Rule Number Two: Never Go Against Your Gut. I gave a little a little Easter egg for it in the last part of this story. I sometimes do that. I sometimes plug in like the names of other stories or the names of other novels throughout you know, different stories and, and books. It's just a fun little thing I like to do. Probably I'm the only one who notices it. But next week, I'll also talk some more about how the idea for the new book came to me and why I decided to write stories about the Moscow Rules. Now, it would be great fun to see some of you at my book event on June 12th. And if you do come, remember while you're there, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next Thursday for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.